The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Hey folks, welcome. Uh, this is a good time show for folks who are listening in for the first time. Welcome. We do this show about two to three times a week. Uh, Shriram and I co-host this. We've been doing this. We just realized that uh, we've been doing this for about six months now. And, um, and you know, we've had a lot of really good guests. We generally cover topics around tech, culture, um, TV shows, movies, all kinds of like fun stuff. And uh, usually we'll bring in a guest or a few guests to talk about a topic. And tonight is no exception. Shriram, who do we have tonight? We have a really, really exciting lineup today. And I think the theme, you know, uh, unless you've been living under a rock, is the idea of a DAO, uh, you know, uh, you know, has kind of really taken, I would say has been around for a while, uh, but it's kind of really kind of captured everyone's imaginations, uh, you know, in recent times. Um, um, and, you know, for a while, we wanted to do a proper justice uh, to this topic. And for us, doing proper justice means, can we get some of the most interesting people who work on the space to come actually talk to us about it. So uh, after a lot of wrangling and scheduling with which the Miami Bitcoin conference did not help matters with, um, and with a lot of help from um, well, the first person I'm going to introduce you to, we have a stellar class. Uh, you know, these folks are all pushing the boundaries uh, of both, not just DAOs, but what uh, crypto means. So I couldn't be more excited. So let me kind of quickly run through the list. Uh, I'm going to quickly elide over what some of the, what they're working on is because we're going to go jump deep into detail about their companies and projects. Um, and we're going to get to learn, learn a lot more about them. Uh, but First up, uh, we have actually somebody I'm very, very you know, proud to work with, uh, Ali Yahya. He's a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, he works on all things crypto. Uh, probably one of the smartest people, just intimately smart people um, I've met. And uh, also, you know, has been super, super helpful, one, to help help teach me all things crypto and also for help put this show together. So Ali, welcome to the show. It was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me, Shriram. Very excited to be here. Thank you. Okay, next up, we have somebody you kind of heard on the show for quite a while, uh, Avichal Garg of Electric Capital. Uh, you know, Avichal is an old, old friend and one of the OG people in crypto. And Avichal, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Now, we have three people uh, today who all work on really, really, actually four people rather, who all work on really fascinating, um, you know, uh, projects and companies. Uh, first up, I want to introduce uh, Dennis Nazarov, uh, you know, uh, one of the founders of Mirror. Dennis, welcome. Hello, hello. Great to be here. Excited Thank you. Such a big, big fan of what you folks do. Uh, next up, we have uh, Will Pepper and Ian Lee of Syndicate Dow. Will, Ian, welcome. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we have, uh, last but definitely not least, you know, working probably one of the most intriguing projects in our world, uh, we have uh, People Pleaser. Uh, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And we're going to go, by the way, I, I have a lot of questions about, you know, uh, Please adopt because I think it's super, super fascinating. But uh, the idea behind the show is we just assume that everybody in the audience has maybe heard of DAOs, but doesn't really know what they are. So you're going to start with the basics, and then we're going to go all super nerdy like we like to do on the show. So first up, Ali, I'm going to start with you. Uh, for those of us who are maybe new to the world of crypto, what is a DAO and why should we care about it? Sounds great. I'll maybe give a very simple definition, and then we can... Uh, open it up for others to provide an even deeper and more kind of philosophically interesting definition. So a DAO, 
really just stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. And uh, one way to think of a DAO is like basically, basically um, through a comparison to uh, sort of traditional corporate entities in the, in the kind of everyday world. So a company um, is an organization of people that has a structure and has a sort of, a sort of a set of rules and a set of incentives. Um, a DAO is kind of like a corporation, but it exists on a blockchain and it consists entirely of software um, in such a way that uh, it truly is community owned and operated and that there isn't really any single uh, point of control. There's no one individual or one small group of individuals that has full control over this organization. And I think like the two things that are most interesting about DAOs as like sort of a organizational structures, as structures that, that help uh, coordinate human activity are one that uh, because they are on a blockchain, uh, they are in a sense sovereign and they have like a life of their own and uh, they are sort of censorship resistant and um, uh, sort of resistant to, to uh, sort of manipulation by, by kind of any, any one small group of individuals. Um, and they kind of respect the, the rules that are encoded within them in a way that's very robust uh, and cannot easily sort of be subverted by, by anyone. And so that's the, the first aspect. And we'll dive deep into the implications of all of this. I'm just kind of trying to give a high level uh, take of what a DAO is. And the second interesting aspect is that DAOs are made entirely of software and are fully programmable. And so as a result, they likely will enable uh, new kinds of decision-making processes or modes of cooperation um, that are really not possible in uh, the traditional world with traditional uh, corporate structures. And it's actually like fairly difficult to predict the kinds of things that may be possible. And I think we will spend a good bit of the episode brainstorming and just like coming up with interesting directions that uh, the technology might take. Uh, but, but the key insight is that because it's fully programmable, um, it's really just software and it, it kind of operates at, at a time scale that's much, much faster than the time scale of like a legal structure in the real world. Uh, you can probably do things that are, that are fundamentally different. So I'll leave it at that. Um, I know that others have, um, I think actually Avicil has a, probably uh, a good, um, another good definition that, that maybe is also historically grounded for what DAOs are. Uh, and so maybe, uh, maybe that, that'd be a good addendum uh, to my definition. Yeah, I'll build on a couple of things. I, I mean, I think the two points you brought up are exactly right, which is sort of this idea of organizing humans and then sort of this blockchain native piece to it. And so on the first, um, it's one of these things that I never really appreciated until very, very recently, which is just like the history of corporations and like the concept of a corporation, because it seems so obvious, I guess, at this time, you know, like it, it's just one of those things that's uh, has always been around as, as far as I'm concerned. But if you, if you kind of go back and look at the history of it, it's a really fascinating concept because there was actually a time at which this idea of a limited liability corporation didn't exist, right? Like somebody had to invent that concept. And before that, what you really had were these partnerships where people had personal liability if the corporation did something that that you know, like if somebody died or if you caused a fire and a bunch of buildings burned down, like you had you had personal liability. Your your assets beyond the assets that you put into this corporation were at risk. Um, and of course, that creates a lot of challenges, right? Because what that means is that how do you get other people to give you money to pursue things that are that are extremely capital intensive? Um, 
and because you know the only people that can they're going to be willing to put in money are the people who have a lot of money and and they know it's all at risk and so you kind of have this natural constraint of this natural bound on how much capital you could aggregate and then of course it also created a, a, another sort of human constraint like ali was talking about this idea of coordinating humans it had another really natural constraint which was that you would only go into business with with basically your family because you had to worry about the consequences of, of somebody that you kind of trusted but didn't necessarily 100% trust. And so people, you know, at some point created this idea of things like joint stock corporations, which are a little bit older, where you can sort of decouple the capital from the people doing the work. And then ultimately the idea of limited liability, which is you as somebody who's putting capital into a business are not personally liable for the consequences of that beyond the capital that you put in. And people, I think, don't realize this, but it was, it was like in the late 1860s, I think it was, it was like mid 1800s, somewhere around 1860, um, you actually needed a, a charter from a king uh, to create a, such a limited liability corporation um, or, or from a state. Like you had to actually go get, you know, like from the governor, the OK to start a corporation, which is kind of a crazy thought today. And, and there's a whole sort of separate discussion we could have at some point about why people thought corporations were dangerous and what the implications of people being able to take risks where they couldn't back up you know, with the capital and so on. But you know, at, at, around that time, people said, well, what if people could just create corporations? And what if you dramatically lowered the friction to creating a corporation? And of course, we know what happened, right? It unlocked all this innovation because all of a sudden now people could pool capital together. And so now things like the railroads became possible. And these like very, very complex things that required lots and lots of humans and lots and lots of capital all of a sudden became possible. And so it was a big unlock on innovation. So that's kind of the first thing. And then the second thing is, I think, in the context of blockchains, you know, one, one worldview I think a lot of people in crypto and blockchain have is you can kind of think of, of blockchain ecosystems almost as, as a country, right? They're kind of their own digital, purely digital economy. And um, the, the property of, of blockchains that really makes this possible is the idea that blockchains let you encode things that are immutable. Um, and that's a really, a really important thing, right? Because you can make guarantees cryptographically about something, right? So the simple, simple version of this is there's 21 million Bitcoin and that's it, right? And, and, um, and, and you sort of are, are trying to guarantee that in your system. Um, and you can obviously make much more complex guarantees, um, but it's, it's an important concept of, of immutability because what you're really saying is it's kind of like a rule of law in a traditional country. Um, and if you think about it, people and businesses and, you know, need that, right? You need stability of rule of law and you need predictability. Um, and if you think about the Internet today, the Internet today is a little bit more like the pre-democratic, you know, uh, and pre-enlightenment era when it's a bunch of kings and, and, and monarchs. Mm -hmm. And so like Facebook and Google and Apple are basically kingdoms and they can just kind of like take your stuff, right? Like they can change the rules whenever they feel like it. And developers know this, obviously, like the APIs just change underneath you or and people, people sort of, I think, intuitively have a sense of this. And so blockchain systems are kind of like a democracy where you write down the rules in a constitution there's a, a system of checks and balances, a way to vote to try to change those rules if you want to, um, but you have to agree to move the system along. So it's, it's slower, it's a lot harder to make work, but it's a lot more resilient. Um, and obviously we saw that like democracies have a lot of really interesting um, you know, advantages, right? And, and so kind of what DAOs are doing is it's like the equivalent of the, of the invention of the joint stock corporation and the limited liability corporation in this new digital economy. And it's a way where you can organize humans and let them pull capital and buy stuff and pay people and if you think about the history of how much innovation was unlocked by by corporations, this is actually a pretty revolutionary idea because now it's not just like somebody that lives inside a particular geography. It's actually anybody on the internet 
right? It's anybody 24-7 anywhere in the world that can now participate in these things, which I think is going to be a, a revolutionary thing. I'll stop my rant there. That's that's at a high level, I think. That's actually, a, that's actually a fantastic overview. Uh, uh, by the way, the book, there's a fantastic book, uh, which I'll call The Company by John Micklewaite and Adrian Woolridge, which kind of goes in the history of the LLC. I highly recommend. Uh, really amazing yeah, overview. A, a plus. Yeah, I agree. Uh, um, uh, you know, I think one person I want to get to before we get to, you know, what is possible with the DAO is Dennis. Uh, when we were preparing for the show, Dennis, you had some really interesting comments about how we saw these proto-DAOs, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s with internet yeah. culture. Um, could you uh, talk about that a bit? Yeah, maybe I'll start with a, to preface, like, you know, these analogies. I think the LSC is a, uh, and Joint Stock Corporation is an amazing, um, you know, kind of conceptual foundation to use. But I would argue, like, my provocation would be using these examples. It's almost as if, you know, we're like in the early 90s or late 80s trying to uh, imagine what, how the internet is going to, you know, disrupt publishing, uh, how social media is going to uh, make media feel different and using the printing press as like the, the primary analogy, you know, and kind of, you know, thinking in terms of uh, this, this historical technology to imagine something that, you know, in the end, um, you know, the way, you know, kids use TikTok today, uh, you know, you could almost say, understanding the printing press as a technology kind of doesn't help you at all because it's just so fundamentally different when, you know, everyone has a publishing device in their pocket, always going to the internet, a camera in their pocket. And I would say like, like to me, what's really exciting about DAOs is, you know, you know, something like an LLC, but the ability to form it, that's, um, you know, at the speed of the internet, at the speed of social media. And I think like, like a good example is just um, to, you know, the way I would I would describe a DAO is, um, you know, it's it's a it's a way for an online community to to coordinate economically and and just think about like what it takes for a group of people um, to start some sort of economic entity and it's it's just so much work right starting an LLC is um, you know you need a lawyer it costs money um, it's not something that's you know. You know, it, it's not the, the speed of, um, you know, using social media, the speed of buying a, a domain name, the speed of setting up a blog. And I think, you know, to all of Avichol's points and, and Ali's points of uh, the impact, um, you know, the, these this economic innovation has had, you know, over the past few centuries, um, it, it's really exciting to imagine that what, what happens if we do that at internet scale. So it's just some examples are, you know, what if a group chat of, you know, your friends that, you know, might be, you know, they might be creative, they might be artists, um, they might have some valuable kind of online native skills, they might be software engineers, designers, um, you know, if they wanted to start a company, it's not something they could do, you know, uh, in the middle of the night after they had some great idea, right? It would take them days or weeks or, or even months to, to kind of set up a legal entity. Um, if they wanted to raise money for it, they'd have, they would have to wait for a YC batch or they would have to know investors. And, and with crypto, um, you know, like, like we're, we, were, we were all talking in a WhatsApp group earlier today that got spun up, you know, you know just a few hours earlier. Uh, with DAOs, you can literally deploy a smart contract, you know, and like the, the kind of the core building block there is uh, a multi-sig contract basically allows a bunch of people to, you know, kind of create a shared bank account in, in a matter of seconds. And from there, you can, um, um, you know, raise money uh, immediately. And, and this is something we, we offer on Mirror. And basically, at the very at least pool capital, uh, create a token representing a stake in that capital and do uh, something like, like like a company. So um, I know I didn't answer your question, but um, I'm really excited about kind of kind of this framing, you know, uh, kind of a corporation at, at internet speed, internet scale. No, I love this. I totally love Dennis. this. Uh, I love it. Um, 
Um, Will, uh, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Ian, I, I know you, you, you both of you kind of have a good analogy here about, you know, how DAOs can be transformative to corporations. Yeah, definitely. Um, one analogy we use a lot is that DAOs uh, do to corporations what YouTube did to filmmaking or what or how blogging has changed publishing. Um, really, DAOs, in essence, dramatically lower the cost and increase the speed. Um, and some people think, oh, that's a nice efficiency improvement, right? But in reality, I mean, if you look at YouTube, the types of content on YouTube is characteristically incredibly different as an entire category from what movies used to look like uh, in the past. And we think that DAOs will transform corporations in the same ways. Companies won't look like companies in five to 10 years. We don't know what exactly they'll look like. Um, we think that Mira and Dennis is doing fantastic work on thinking about them as communities. Um, mm -hmm. It might look something like that. Um, but it's really going to be transformative in the way it uh, changes just the very nature of a corporation. Could you expand on that just a bit? Now, we're going to go deeper into, you know, Mirror and Syndicate and Pleaser later. But, you know, for folks listening, when you say companies won't look like companies, what does it mean? Could you give us an example of what could be possible that mm -hmm. is not possible today in a very kind of more, uh, in a more tangible manner? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, Syndicate, we're coming at it from the angle of uh, venture funds. So traditionally, to set up a venture fund, um, it costs at least $8,000, sometimes $60,000 per year. Um, Syndicate, you can do it for as low as $8. And then the types of people who can become managers and the types of ideas that can get funded is completely different than before. You can start investment funds for $500 ideas, $1,000 ideas, um, and Ian's been thinking a lot about the history and how this how this transforms it as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what Will's saying is is definitely you know how, how we view this technology. I mean, it's 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 pretty crazy actually. Like, it, you know, for me, and I'm sure same with Dennis. Like when when um, you know Dennis has been doing a bunch of cool stuff on Mirror with crowdfunding and stuff. Like, it literally feels like you're 10 years into the future and you like, you don't want to go back when you first launch your DAO. And the funny thing is like, there's still a ton of friction around DAOs today, like setting them up and, um, you know, making sure that you're not breaking the rules or if you are breaking the rules, like, you know, what risks you're taking, but, but even despite all those frictions, there's, there's multiple magic moments where, you kind of, I mean, if, if, if anyone's ever created a DAO, you'll know this, like, it's like, holy excuse my language holy shit like oh, this, yeah yeah well, yeah sorry yeah, I, I don't know what the rules are here. Sure, you know. yeah this is my first time i don't want to get you know i don't want to not be invited to come back you know we have a but, uh, combo's exec on the show now we can't get banned <laughs> oh that's well well i don't know well, TB, tbd right and if you say bad uh, words that's how you get invited back that, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go all right well well well, well, holy shit then. Yeah. So, so no, it's, it's like you have like multiple holy shit moments where you're like, oh my God, why, why did we ever raise funds or start funds or coordinate in these ways? And you know, that that's kind of where we're at right now. I think that the, the infrastructure that, you know, Will and I at Syndicate and Dennis at Mirror and People Pleaser with Pleaser Dow are building and many others, by the way, like over, over many years, um, is going to catch up to the point where, I think the infrastructure and user experience will be sort of seamless where, you know, even now, Will and I with Syndicate and, and these other things, like you can launch a fund in seconds for less than $10. Mm -hmm. And like the implications of that are profound. 
Um, you know, as Will was mentioning, like we we believe that one of the things that DAOs offers offer to society in the world is to start to coordinate human beings and capital around things that always should have been invested in, but are not getting the attention or the capital or the resources or the support that they need or or demand or honestly deserve. And so um, I was going to go a little bit into the history of DAOs, but maybe we want to like pause here and see if we want to take it a different direction. No, I think this is fantastic. Actually, this may be a good jumping off point. Uh, you know, Ali, when you, I, I want to go to you, uh, because I think Ian just touched on something, which I want to dig deeper. You tweeted a little bit ago, uh, a little bit earlier about themes. And one of the themes you talked about, which I thought was really fascinating, was, you know, what kind of decision-making coordination um, is now possible with DAOs that a legacy LLC, C-Corp, traditional company um, just couldn't have access to, you know, both in terms of, I think, decentralization, both in terms of, uh, you know, the programmatic nature of it. Uh, could you help kind of paint a picture of what that means? What is now possible from a decision-making or a coordination perspective with a DAO that a traditional C-Corp LLC could not dream of? Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, maybe a good way to get to that is to, is to first add to what Will uh, and Ian were saying about how uh, with the technology that we have for DAOs, you can essentially improve the cost of uh, creating something like an LLC by multiple orders of magnitude, like something like, you know, three to five, 10,000 times better in terms of cost, in terms of attrition, in terms of how much you have to pay, and, and so I think like the, the thing that I would want to emphasize um, is that normally when you have that level of improvement, when you have, uh, say, 10,000 improvement in the cost of something, it ends up being the case that the improvement end, ends up being not just quantitative, that you don't just have uh, like a faster way of creating an LLC. You also end up with just fundamental changes in what you can do. And I think like this is to, also to what, what Dennis was saying about how like it's part of reason about uh, what the implications of the internet are going to be by thinking about the printing press. Similarly, I think like a different example that also drives that point home is it, it was it would have been very very hard to imagine the things that the internet would be able to do by thinking about uh, the the post postmail system as a as like a driving analogy. Uh, and in a sense, like both of those two systems, like the postal system. And the internet do very similar things. They namely move packets of information from point A to point B. But the kinds of things that you can do with the internet, given that it's a million times more performant and better and just about every way than the postal system, are, are truly fundamentally different. And so that's kind of what I was trying to get at with this question and this tweet. Like, given that we are improving uh, the ability to create LLC like structures by multiple orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. uh, what new kinds of things, what new decision-making um, models or new incentive structures might we be able to build? Right. And I think to make it a little bit um, concrete, I think like the, the biggest thing that might give us a hint is, again, the fact that these are uh, structures that are fully programmable, and the code runs at the, at the rate at which the computers operate, as opposed to the rate at which like lawyers in the real world operate. And, um, like I think maybe like one way of, of uh, conveying an example here is uh, is to think of almost every crypto project that we know and love out there uh, as a DAO. Like you can think, for example, of Compound, 
mm-hmm. uh, which is, for those of you who may not know, Compound is a, is a money market that's fully decentralized. It's a smart contract that runs on top of Ethereum. And what that means is that it's just a program to which you can lend money and earn yield, or uh, from which you can borrow money um, in exchange for some collateral. And this, is, this exists entirely on chain, um, without intermediaries, and in a way that, that is uh, sort of fully, fully decentralized. Uh, and the decision making process for something like Topbound is a combination of what the members of the DAO, namely the, the, the token holders of the comp token, uh, vote for with the automated logic that exists within, within Compound, namely the, the actual program itself. And so in a sense, like, like that, this new ability that the DAO members have to add uh, logic to their organization, to add uh, like actual live running code into their organization that runs continuously, uh, as executed continuously by the blockchain, is the thing that makes something like Compound possible. That wouldn't wouldn't be possible um, with just that DLC structure. Uh, without like, you know having having to have like a lot of additional machinery to make something. Mm-hmm. Like you know, um, one of the things you know which really interests me is I love this Ali because one of the things that you know I always you know been recently intrigued by is you know my former employers were these large social media platform companies. And one of the things which intrigues me is what does it take for a Facebook or a Twitter or any social media platform, but in the form of a DAO where the actual people on the platform actually have um, ownership and actually have governance uh, in a way that's not possible today. So I think that's super, super interesting. Um, Okay, I want to switch tracks, you know, just a little bit. Um, I want to get this very, very specific. Now, when we're looking at some of the early uh, applications of DAOs that are out there, uh, one of the most interesting ones is Pleaser DAO. And so uh, People Pleaser, you know, there's going to be a bit of a weird question, but I think it makes sense. Could you tell us about who you are and then really explain the story behind Pleaser DAO and what it is? Because I think it's truly fascinating. Hey, everyone. Um, yeah, totally. So for those who are not familiar with my work, I had been in the crypto space while passively investing since 2017, but then actively contributing to the space since last summer, which is also known as DeFi summer. And what I was doing was basically rallying community and collaborating with a bunch of DeFi protocols and making animation um, videos for them and sort of just helping to shape the aesthetic of the space because I felt like they could really benefit from that. And from there, I built basically a little community around um, people who appreciate my work. And then um, in March, uh, well, actually in January, Uniswap had um, reached out to one of my good friends, Tarun, who's also um, in the space, and then asked if they could somehow be connected with me to collaborate on a video for their V3 announcement. And then uh, knowing that this was basically one of the most highly anticipated announcements of um, the year for DeFi and maybe just crypto as well. Um, so uh, basically what I did was I made the Uniswap V3 video, which came out in March. And uh, while I was making this video, I also, this was during the time of the NFT boom, and I really wanted to sort of also take advantage of uh, the booming space of NFTs and see how that could kind of combine with what I was doing. And then so I pitched the idea to Uniswap to also sort of auction this off as an NFT, 
Um, and I mean, for, for people who are, who were previously familiar with my work, um, that's not something that I'd done before, even though, you know, technically what I'm doing is not far off from NFT art, which is just 3d animations, um, mm-hmm. helping bring awareness to the space. So anyway, and, um, sort of raising money for a good cause, um, through NFTs had been an idea that I had been, um, brewing on for a while now. So I thought that this was a perfect opportunity to do something like that. And, uh, luckily they, uh, we're totally on board with this and so we uh kicked it off kicked it off as an auction <laughs> and then basically what happened was uh a group of sort of like fans and patrons came together um to form so actually what happened was when i was uh announcing that i was doing the nft um Leighton cusack who's a co-founder pulled together uh quote tweeted my tweet and then just quickly said, does anybody want to quickly create a DAO to bid on this? So mm-hmm. he had already assumed that it was going to be something that might not be something that he could afford alone, but he right. really wanted the piece. And then so he, and he knew that, you know, he was kind of like well-connected in this um, crypto Twitter space as well. So he just um, thought that there was a high chance that there would be a number of individuals who'd be interested mm-hmm. in doing this. And then so after he sent out that tweet, so basically the formation, <laughs> I'm talking about the story of the formation of Pleaser DAO. So the formation of it is, was quite um, accidental, but also organic in the way that it started. And then from just a bunch of people jumping in the Twitter thread saying, yes, I'd be interested. And then from there, I think right. what happened was they formed a Telegram group. And then, um, yeah, so they were lo- looking for ways to sort of uh, pool funds together. And uh, luckily, you know, with DAOs and uh, the blockchain, this is possible. And then so um, I think initially they kind of just used... Um, because they weren't sure if Foundation uh, was uh, compatible with Gnosis Save, which is what they wanted to use at the time. Mm-hmm. And then so they just kind of like, I think the first, like how it was incepted was they used like a trust, just like they, it was based off of trust and they used a wallet and then everybody was just sending funds to that wallet. And then that's kind of how they, so, and then, you know, just through word of mouth, like people telling other people, that's how they kind of like got a group together to pull enough funds that they felt like, they had bidding power on the piece and then they um, obviously waited until the end of the auction to come in with bids and bid against a few wheels and then in the end uh, won the auction with a 310 ETH bid and uh, after, I mean, obviously this whole thing came together uh, very uh, quickly and randomly um, and uh, but now having like formed this DAO, they realized that they could conti- or they could continue to sort of pursue other art pieces this way um and i guess yeah maybe this was sort of the first time that this had ever happened which was a dao being specifically formed to buy um somebody's art piece and so yeah that was the long and short of the formation of pleaser dao and then Mm -hmm. since then i've joined as an honorary member and kind of just uh cheer them on but also want to steer uh steer them or just kind of you know we all have a shared ethos and um aligned visions i think so yeah, I think it's just a really cool movement to be a part of. So I think this, I love the story. And in some ways, I think this is one of the easiest DAO concepts to almost understand. And just to make sure I think I got to understand, people just do correct me. Um, I think, you know, one thing is, so, you know, you have an NFT and your work is really valuable and you had people who just couldn't afford it. So essentially you created a community with this tweet, which by the way, you can actually go find and that community came together with the DAO and were able to pool the resources and actually then go acquire the NFT, which none of them individually may not be able to afford. Is that an accurate summa- summation? 
Yeah, I would say so. Um, how does governance, like, I'm curious, right? So now, you know, let it, how does governance work here? Very simply, how does uh, what NFTs get bid on, um, you know, how much should be bid on, you know, how does that get decided? So uh, I think the really cool part is that um, obviously after my initial piece, X times I equals K, uh, the second piece that they acquired was the Edward Snowden piece. And um, uh, I think first already sort of like everybody, because um, everybody's still like crypto and DeFi native within this uh DAO already. So it was pretty clear that our shared, uh, we had like, you know, an alignment of visions and our shared uh, sort of goals and ethos are always revolved around anything technology, crypto, um, independent thinking related. Um, and also uh, there's a charitable charitable aspect, which is um, something that I had inspired towards the DAO, right? So anything that uh, is to do with a good cause and um, generally just a cause that we all as a collective care about. Uh, so mm-hmm. anything, yeah. And then, so, you know, for example, the X times Y equals K piece, um, means a lot to them because of what it represents within crypto and DeFi. And then, um, yeah. So then when the Snowden piece, uh, dropped, I think I remember, um, pretty much, uh, somebody actually just, uh, sent the link in within the telegram group. And then everybody was like, Oh, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. And then so I reached out to Jameis, the chief pleasing officer of Pleaser Dow, um, that they had. The, wait, 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 the chief pleasing <laughs> officer. Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I just want. I, 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 that's not a title you see on LinkedIn, so I just want to call that out. Yeah, it's a position that we literally created. Um, and I think that's also super cool, right? About this Dow is like we make the rules, kind of. Um, but yeah, so essentially he's. Uh, sort of functioning as a CEO because it is a group of uh, people who are already established and, you know, obviously have other commitments. And then so we need somebody to kind of like herd the group in general. And then so that is James's task. And then so I sort of reached out to him and was just like, we should go after this Edward Snowden piece. And then everybody. um, So then usually when it comes to decisions like this, I think um, for speed, especially like for, um, things that don't require urgency, we'll use a snapshot vote. So that is based, um, because they did create, uh, peeps tokens, so governance tokens. And then, so those are what we're using. You folks vote. really have your naming, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So those are what we're going to be, uh, voting on or, or using to vote on. And then, so for less urgent matters, we can use, um, sort of snapshot to vote for it. And then um, for more urgent matters, because, you know, obviously sometimes people might have problems with like MetaMask or uh, connecting. And then so uh, really urgent things, we will use uh, create polls in Telegram. And so uh, people are just voting in in the Telegram chat as it's happening. And then so what was really cool to witness happening with the Snowden piece, for example, and also happened with the uh, Tor project uh, piece as well, is that for example, like if we're going to raise the maximum bid, um, and this is all happening in real time, and they're all performing under time pressure as well, that's exactly how sort of bidding wars work, right? And mm-hmm. then so, um, like we need to react, or to just even see everybody react so quickly to these things. Um, obviously, when a, an active bidding is going on, everybody is you know very very engaged in the chat, and then so uh, polls are being created, and then we quickly vote, and then when the votes go through, for example, raising the maximum bid, then we will um, pass it over to. Um, there's I, I don't remember how many people are on the multi sig, but I think there might be 
like four or five people in the multi-sig. And so they have to sign off on it. <laughs> and then um, then obviously the, the transactions will be pushed through. And so that's kind of like how it works so far, um, mainly just through polling on Telegram mm-hmm. and then also uh, snapshot voting with governance tokens. Uh, in some ways, I mean, you know, real world analogies only go so far, but like the people in the multi-sig are kind of essentially the trustees who actually have, you know, actual power over uh, the capital in a way. Uh, sorry, I didn't get that. Oh, sorry. I, I was just trying to compare this to, to you know, uh, you know, old school corporation concepts where the people holding the multi-sig are almost trustees who you entrust with actual access to the capital. But yeah, I, I, I love... Uh, I love this. Uh, I, I love this story because I think it kind of shows off, uh, you know, with a very, very specific example that we can all relate to how DAOs are powerful. Now, Dennis, I, I know you kind of have a thought here about, you know, how Pleaser DAO led to, you know, party DAO and bid. You want to chime in? <laughs> yes, would love to. Yeah, it's, it's it's such an amazing, inspiring story, and I think, um, you know, my team and I, and just I think people in the space of broadly have been following this. And I think what, what's exciting is this, what, what people please are talking about is this mechanism called the reserve auction. And it's what foundation uses and these other platforms, basically that there's a reserve price. And when the bid is placed, there's a 24 hour uh, countdown that begins. So all the action happens usually at the very end, like the last 15 minutes. And that's where it gets very competitive. And um, if you observe these auctions, you know, usually there's this, this bidding war, um, but there's this problem, right? Um, there's lots of patrons that want to collect the artwork, but only one person can win. So sometimes you see like a bidding war between 10 different people, but only one person actually wins the NFT and excludes all of these other patrons. So you can argue that an auction is sort of, you know, it's like antisocial, it's a kind of anti-network effects because like this one person's waiting to snipe uh, the auction at the end. And basically uh, an idea um, my team and I had was uh, at Mirror was that um, what if there was some way for, imagine that there were uh, 10 bids and they got outbid by a whale, the 11th bid. What if those 10 people underneath that got outbid, what if they could pool their money? And usually if you add up, if you sum all of the bids uh, before the winner, they would actually add up to more than the winning bid. So what if they could somehow easily bid their money together and 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 basically uh, uh, place place a higher bid? And I think Please Adar is an incredible example of like, right, right, this will be completely impossible if you were building, uh, bidding on like a Sotheby's auction with like, um, you know, a bunch of rich art collectors, you know, if the auction was happening late at night, like they couldn't even wire money because um, the banks would be closed, right? You can't, you can't wire when it's outside of business hours. So like uh, the multi-sig made that much easier. And with party bid, the idea was, um, you know, can we enable people basically, basically create a, a smart contract, a program that had very specific rules, and the rules uh, were as follows: uh, anyone could anyone could deposit uh, uh, ETH into the smart contract. Literally mm-hmm. anyone. You could tweet this thing out, and the rules were: as long as the smart contract can place the highest bid on an auction, it will. So basically, it removes all of this uh, coordination required to, uh, you know, set up a multi-sig. You know, who do you trust to be in this uh, uh, group of trustees? Uh, and basically, it kind of automates uh, uh, bidding. So. If you put an ETH, you basically uh, the the stake you put in is accounted for, and if if uh, this party bid wins the auction, you kind of have a tokenized share in that NFT that is won. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was just an idea we had. And the problem was, um, you know, the Mirror team has um, its own roadmap, working on a lot of things. Uh, we couldn't build this in house, so I I was uh, you know kept getting distracted by this idea, and we couldn't build it. So I thought we should just release this idea. So I tweeted it out. 
And uh, it, there was actually this um, this mechanism design thread that uh, this guy Dave from uh, uh, Paradigm does every Friday. And uh, you know, it got retweeted, and people thought it was a, a really cool idea. And uh, three days later, uh, th this guy Anish uh, Agnihotri, who's um, he's a he's a computer science student at Waterloo. Uh, he, he's like 17. He's a freshman. Um, he quote tweets my tweet and says he built a prototype of it. So this is kind of like this again, like an example of crypto native yeah. coordination. You share an idea mm -hmm. online, and um, in, you know days later, someone likes your idea and builds a prototype of it. By the way, it's highly you know, readable uh, code on GitHub. By the way, I tweeted mm -hmm. a few days ago. Highly, rec if somebody's just getting into Solidity for the first time, uh, highly recommend checking it out. Um, so and then to continue the story, uh, if you guys know Colin and Samir, I think they were actually on, on Good Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Good friends, amazing. They're probably amazing. gonna come back soon too. They minted their first NFT on Mirror, and uh, they, it got it, it got into a bidding war that went up to almost 10 ETH, and it turned out the the account that won the NFT was party bid. It was Anish and, and some of his friends deploying a prototype of it, and they pulled their money together and, and they won the auction. And nice. you know, it was a very early version. Version it wasn't ready for kind of prime time to be uh, built out as it as a full product. But I was like, oh my god, this is amazing! You know, it feels like we've reached minimum viable meme status for party bid. Like you know, there's mm -hmm. enough mind share around it. Um, it's been retweeted in so many contexts. How do we take it to the next level as a real product and maybe like even like as a as a you know startup that could. Um, you know, you know, run on its own. You know, potentially have revenue, et cetera. But you know, I obviously, I, you know, I'm I'm the founder of one project. I I couldn't do this all by myself. So what I did the next day, I just wrote up a blog post and using Mirror uh, explaining kind of this whole uh, genesis story. And uh, because Mirror lets you uh, crowdfund, uh, right now it's capped to 25 ETH. I also embedded a crowdfund widget, and, and basically, if you back a crowdfund on Mirror, you get a token back. So I named the token the Party Token because, uh, well, what would you call the organization building Party Bit? It would be the Party DAO. So basically, the, the, the post said this: If you back this crowdfund, if you put an ETH, you get Party Tokens, and if you have Party Tokens, we will create a token-gated Discord. And this is also an exciting, another exciting. Yes, kind of by the way, that's something I want to set up for this show, which is uh, you know have a Discord connected to it, uh, you know, with Party Gate. I mean, a token-gated. That's, all, that's, that's excellent. And it's been this ex exciting mechanism. Basically, if your community has a token, you can uh, basically uh, allow them to communicate with each other by, by kind of getting access to, to, to a chat room. You know, imagine like if you had Apple stock, you could talk about Apple products in, in, in a Discord. Like that would be really, really powerful. So basically people back this crowdfund and they joined this Discord and that was the beginning. And, and that's, all, that's all there was. We, don't, we didn't know what was going to happen with the project, how we were going to build it out. But you know, we shared it with a bunch of great people. A bunch of great people backed it. You know, there were some of them were smart contract developers, designers, um, you know, just kind of uh, uh, front end developers. All of these talented people that were just interested in this as a side project. And most importantly, kind of the 25 ETH was kind of like the seed round for uh, this project. But it wasn't raised from VCs. It was just raised from uh, a crowdfund tweeted out and just a bunch of people putting in ETH, you know, late night. Right. And from then. Um, Basically, a roadmap has been created. Uh, someone, uh, John Palmer, another member of the crypto community, uh, kind of applied as a product manager. Uh, Anish is helping out. There's all these really talented people. There's actually a, a small team has formed to build V1 of PartyBit, and it's going to be deployed as, as a product. So well, there's an amazing story. I think one question I have, and maybe others have, and Dennis, people, please, or any of you, 
you know, we had multiple discussions here about NFTs. And I think people kind of have a mental model where they kind of connect NFTs to art. You know, you have this idea, you go to Christie's, you sell the bees, you bid on a piece, you win a piece. And here, actually, we're talking about these programmatic automated mechanisms where several people, dozens, hundreds of people, maybe a lot more, have essentially fractional ownership, uh, you know, monetarily, you know, governance-wise on uh, a very unique piece of item. So what does it mean, you know, uh, when you say bid and win on Colin Sami's NFT, and there are several hundred of you, what does it mean in terms of ownership and access and uniqueness? It's, it's, it's funny, like the, the literal mechanism is, say, uh, the current top bid uh, is uh, 10 ETH. And let's say to make uh, a higher bid, we need 11 ETH. And let's just say 11 people put in one ETH each. They all have, you know, you know, one eleventh stake in this in this NFT if they win it. So basically, it's very easy to, you know, do that uh, accounting in a program and issue tokens represent, representing a pro rata share. And basically what, what's cool about this is you don't have to trust, there's no operator of a party bid or, or, or kind of any of these you know, you know, DAO smart contracts. You just know that th those are the rules of the code. And um, basically you know that the, the, the blockchain will execute the code correctly and issue uh, uh, the tokens you deserve. No one can take it away from you. No, no one can change the program, et cetera. Right, okay. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit. So, so far, we've been talking about DAOs and how they can enable things that typical corporations today can't do. But we still, you know, we live in a world uh, where we have LLCs and C-Corps and bound by the legal systems that all of us live in. Uh, we live in different countries, which have different versions of that. And I think one question I have is, what does the bootloader look like? You know, you have... The, this construct which exists in on the blockchain, and then you have a set of constructs which exist in the legal systems of various countries. So maybe Will Ian, since I think you know Syndicate DAO obviously touches on this, I'm curious to hear about how do you think about you know this bootloading mechanism. Um, and the second part of it is how do you think about where somebody should domicile a DAO, like which. Uh, you know, geopolitical constructs should they be tied to? Now, this is something Balaji has asked about on Twitter. This is something I know he has a lots of thoughts on. Would love to get your thoughts. Will, Ian? Definitely, absolutely. Um, yeah, these questions are incredibly relevant because they are uh, gigantic unanswered questions that shows us just how early the DAO space is. Um, one simple example uh, based on the jurisdiction a DAO chooses is where do the taxes go if they make profits on an investment? Um, that is uh, questions that are basically unanswered um, right now. And there are efforts to help with that. Um, the Wyoming DAO law is one prominent effort. Um, there's other mechanisms to to connect DAOs to corporate entities. So the Wyoming DAO law is a little overhyped, but still extremely useful. Um, but I think that there is a massive fork in the road that DAOs face on um, these uh, connections to the off-chain world. And the question is, do they want to adopt off-chain entities and then adopt a certain jurisdiction's legal system um, where they're paying taxes on that jurisdiction and they're governed by the laws of it and they have clarity to uh, to form legal agreements and sign contracts and enter into all sorts of off-chain agreements? Or do, will DAOs end up taking the full code as law view um, where the DAO itself is the contract, it's decentralized, it's jurisdictionless, um, and for example, if it's hacked, well, then the argument is, well, that's what the code was, um, so that's what the law is. Um, 
And I think that there's a real fork in the road that the community needs to uh, handle. And the Wyoming Dow Law is a helpful step in the right direction. There's uh, could you explain other... what the Wyoming Dow Law is? Because uh, I, I think we've read the press, but not familiar with the details. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. So the Wyoming Dow Law essentially lets you um, attach a corporate entity based on the state of Wyoming to a DAO. Um, and this was heralded as incredibly novel and the first time you could incorporate a DAO. That's not entirely true. Um, the members of a DAO could have always incorporated their own DAOs. Um, there was nothing stopping them from, uh, from, 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 from registering their DAO uh, with, 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 a, uh, with, a, with a state such as Delaware. Um, but the Wyoming DAO law makes it a lot easier. So Wyoming has led the charge in some of this jurisdictional clarity. Um, I think you'll see ideally a lot of uh, competition for um, these jurisdictions. Um, one thing that the sovereign individual uh, was very prescient about uh, back in the late 90s mm-hmm. um, is that jurisdictions might compete to win DAOs because the DAOs themselves have no jurisdictions, but they'll choose some sort of off-chain legal system and tax system to adopt. You know, by the way, I feel like, you know, uh, Balaji, was, uh, you know, who's not on the show tonight, but you feel like I'm, I'm getting Balaji through you, Will. Uh, on this topic, uh, you know, I'm curious. You know, you know, outside of the U.S., what are you seeing when you look at other countries in terms of, uh, you know, we are obviously in a day where El Salvador just, you know, declared Bitcoin legal tender. Uh, obviously, not in the world of DAOs, but I am curious. See, what are you seeing in terms of countries competing to be as DAO slash sovereign individual slash Balaji friendly? <laughs> Maybe I can jump in here. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned Balaji because, um, you know, Balaji had this, his tweet, I, I want to say in like 2019 or something where he was, and it, and it kind of relates a lot to uh, Dennis's Project Mirror as well as uh, Will and mine syndicate, which is he, he tweeted this thing that he said like crypto, like, you know, the internet turned everyone into a publisher. Crypto is going to turn everyone into an investor. Mm-hmm. And what's what's interesting about that is he also tweeted that, in like, I can't remember what he said, like maybe in 2040 or something, there's going to be like 20 billion VCs. And in some ways that that is very much inspiring our project at Syndicate, which is we, we are creating a decentralized investing protocol that enables anyone, anyone in the world or any group in the world to create an investing DAO. And, um, you know, those investing DAOs could be one person, they could be five people, they could be you know, thousands or potentially millions of people when we get to a fully decentralized state. Mm-hmm. And that, in, in our opinion, is what's going to unlock, you know, you know, not like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of VCs like we see today, but potentially millions or even billions of investors around the world uh, in, the, in the future. And I, th- I think that that is um, both the opportunity, but also part of the challenge, which is like, you know, there, there's tons of existence proof right now that People are already forming these, in, in Syndicate's case, investing circles all over the internet using crypto. Like, you know, you, you talk to anybody on Telegram or on Twitter and you ask them, like, you know, what, what are they doing on the side of their day job? They are, a lot, in a lot of cases, forming Telegram chats or email groups or WhatsApp groups, and they're forming multi-sigs or sometimes they're just doing it in Google Sheets. And they're co-investing with each other. They're either buying NFTs. They're, you know, in some cases, maybe one out of the five people is like really, really good at yield farming. And so they're just like, hey, I'll entrust you because you're one of my closest friends 
to yield farm, like I'll give you like a few hundred bucks or whatever, just to yield farm. And like a group of five to 10 people will do that. And they're already forming these investing circles. They're just not, they're just not formalized as DAOs. And so we, we believe that that is existence proof that this like market is, is already here. Like there's so much latent demand. They just need the infrastructure, the, the user experience, like the appropriate legal protections. And, and then the challenge becomes freedom to your question, like how do we deliver that to them? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and for syndicate, we are building both a decentralized protocol, but as, as Will was kind of alluding to, we already can snap legal entities into DAOs if, if groups want to, you know, want those types of protections. And then as far as like internationally, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that there's like, you know, any one jurisdiction that is like trying to necessarily like, you know, um, like, I don't know, like we, we see more demand in like Korea versus the US or whatever. It largely follows like where these crypto epicenters are like in Asia and Europe, like Berlin and, and obviously here in the US and, and some in South America and places like that. But I think like from a, from a, like a government perspective, like clearly, you know, Wyoming is doing some stuff like Miami is starting to pop up. Like I saw something recently in Texas the other day here in the US, but internationally, like it's, it's, it's very, like, I would say it's still very early for DAOs. So like most, most, mostly where I, I think you're getting a lot of like interest potentially in DAOs is mostly where there's interest just for crypto in general. So places like, you know, Singapore, South Korea, um, you know, Dubai, places like that. And to me, a, a big canary in the coal mine, uh, you know, earlier this year was our Wall Street bets. And mm -hmm. the way I describe that is, you know, you know what happened there? And I would say it was it was an online community and you could say it was an investment club, but it was the first time an on online community got access to an economic API. And that economic API, I would argue, you know, just to just to provoke a bit, I would say it wasn't very good. It, it, it was a Robin Hood, but it, it was still very powerful. It let this community buy a stock and that was, you know, the GameStop stock. And by coordinating, they could, you know, they made a, uh, you know, a big statement, kind of a, a point, you know, about capitalism by, um, you know, doing to the market what they did. And I, I would argue that crypto is going to prove out to be a much better, much more powerful economic API. And, and just imagine what will happen uh, when communities, you know, at the scale of Wall Street bets, at the, the scale of that coordination, uh, do that. And and just one more provocation, I would say that, uh, in my opinion, you know, the kind of you know meat space domicile is, I think, is is interesting long term. But I think short term, you know, you know, we don't ask the question, you know, where is your website domiciled? You know, because the internet is global, right? You know, anyone can access a website anywhere. And I would say that, you know, the internet economy and especially fueled by crypto is going to be so big that we can have, and to use Bology's distinction of land versus cloud, there's just so much opportunity for DAOs to do business in the cloud without being domiciled that there will be, you know, tons of in really interesting applications there. And I think NFT, you know, group NFT buying is the first one, but there will be tons and tons of ones like that. Well, one, one. I mean, Dennis brings up a really interesting provoca provocation. And I think that, like, you know, if you look historically at what people think about in terms of DAOs, it, it um, you know, very much follows that um, same same thinking. And, and we, Will and I, definitely agree. I, I would personally sort of um, throw out an idea, though, that uh, Will and I talk about a lot, which is, like, are, decentralized, are DAOs decentralized autonomous organizations or is it better framing or a different framing, decentralized automated organizations? And 
one of the implications when you frame it that way is that DAOs exist on a spectrum of automation from fully autonomous, which is what, you know, a lot of things that we, we are seeing today and, and definitely like, you know, agree with Dennis, like in the future, right? Most of the things that we are going to see like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now are going to be on the fully autonomous side. But then there's this potential gradient or spectrum of automation to things on the other end of the spectrum that are more automated and less autonomous. And, and what that might imply is that like some of these like small groups, like five people, 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, they're using DAO tech to automate a lot of their off-chain sort of processes around human coordination or capital co coordination, but it's so not what's, the, what's an example of some process that could get automated that way? Oh yeah, like for sure. I mean, this is, you know, sort of what Syndicate does, like automating um, effectively the, the the primary functions of, of investing, which is raising capital, managing right. capital, deploying capital, returning capital. And also, I guess the fifth one is like, you know, reporting on the management of that, right? Like automated uh, automation of reporting, automation of like decision-making in the form of, you know, quote unquote governance, but like governance with a five, like if, if us nine people, like we, we formed a investing DAO, let's say, like we don't need like, I mean, unless, unless you tell me differently, like we don't need like full on-chain governance. Like we don't need full trustless setups. No, I just give all the power I, to I Ali and trust what he does. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like just, just set it and forget it with Ollie. Right. Um, uh, and so I think that a lot of DAOs will actually look like that too, in addition to these like fully autonomous ones. And, and the last thing that I'll just say is that when you think of DAOs as a spectrum of automation, that likely necessarily implies that there will be a good number of DAOs that will want to follow like jurisdictional law, right? right? For whatever reason, because the law is a law and it's like not going away. It's just, it, 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 the, the thing, the thing that does change is how it's applied to this technology framework. Well, I think this goes, oh, sorry, go ahead, so go on, go on. Well, I was going to say this, this actually harkens back to something Dennis said, I think at, at the early part of the conversation, which is just this sort of pattern that we see in technology, right? Like early applications of stuff are sort of skeuomorphic. Like they, they map to the thing that we're used to and they sort of bring them into, the, into this new realm. Um, and so, yeah, I agree, I agree with Ian and Will, obviously, that you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff here that just maps back to, to land. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the, on the far automated end of the spectrum, I mean, it's, it's funny, like that quote of, there, I think Ian, you said there are going to be 20 billion um, VCs. Um, it's interesting because what that starts to hint at, right, is the idea that actually you can have like autonomous computer AI that is not even a human that can actually be deploying capital, right? And like, what is that thing? Like, does that even need, like you, you can't actually map that back to the real world, right? It's not It's not a thing that has a social security number, right? So like, how do you even create accountability around that? So it opens up sort of this whole Pandora's box of once you can do this stuff, like the other far end of the spectrum, I think is the stuff that, mm -hmm. that's like the, the Ubers and the Airbnbs, you know, like envisioning something like that in 1992 would have been so hard um, because so much other stuff had to happen first. We had to get to point B before we could get to C. Um, and I think that's the kind of stuff that gets really interesting here is like, what, what are the things that we're just starting to, to scratch the surface on where we're not, we're just starting to get our heads around what's even possible. You know, I, I would say, you know, I love that, you know, it's like, if you look at the internet applications in the nineties, they were just extensions of, you know, they could be like, Hey, here's your CD-ROM, but online mm -hmm. as opposed totally. to here's Google and here's Wikipedia. 
um and i love your analogy by the way you know uh, i was thinking about when i was reading up on daos uh you know one of my favorite sci-fi books of the last 15 years is uh demon by daniel suarez if yeah. you guys haven't read it uh, highly recommended one of the best pieces of sci-fi over the last 20 years and one of the plot lines in the book you know it's not a major spoiler is there's this automated piece of you know code ai whatever you want to call it which basically sets up financial incentives for to go hunt down someone to go do various things and i was struck by how similar that was to a dao and something i just discovered over this weekend i was googling uh you know something about vitalik and in an interview vitalik actually mentioned that that book was actually inspiration for his paper/work on daos you know right down to the original ethereum paper so um a lot of i think what was imagine in sci-fi over 10 years ago actually directly led to the building blocks of technology created and maybe things which we can't even imagine in the future totally well you know this this also touches on and we can get a little bit dystopian i think there are very positive implications here too but you know like when i think about the terminator scenario i i don't think it's going to be the boston dynamics robots that come after you i think it's much more likely that some sort of nefarious agent can reach into the real world through capital through through the ability to now hold capital and act on it in the real world and sort of so like we we've talked a lot about it fan and people thought a uh, bit about like how do you take stuff from existing jurisdictions and and governments and and land and project that into the cloud but i think it's just as interesting to think about the things that exist primarily first in the cloud right. and how do they project back into land space right like in uh, the latest season of westworld there is this sort of uber for crime app where you know you can kind of summon yeah, totally. people and ask them to do criminal tasks for you and one thing it struck me is you don't need a human being to do the summoning on the other side it could be uh, you know a smart contract uh, which does the summoning but okay or uh, uh, switching topics away from dystopian sci-fi um it, Dennis I want to go to you uh, you know I think so far when we've been talking about DAOs you know we primarily primarily been envisioning you know one to one voting or mapping which is for example when uh, people pleaser was talking about party you know uh, please dao it was like i think the mental model say so a one person one word uh, roughly um i'm curious you know to hear about you know other mechanisms and maybe this might be a good uh, way for you to talk about what mirror does i think we talked about mirror uh, a bit but we are actually talk about what it does and also your right trace because i think that's a good example of having different sort of membership management mechanisms for daos Yeah totally um I mean the high level explanation of mirror it's a, it's a suite of uh, uh native publishing and economic tools for creators so uh we give we let our creators uh, set up their decentralized blog and that uses instead of DNS it uses ENS which is a naming system where the users completely own the names all the data lives in our weave uh we let our users crowdfund using cryptocurrency and also the twist on crowdfunds is uh if you someone backs a crowdfund they get a token and that token represents both kind of membership stake in the project but also an economic stake so if that project is successful in the future uh the backers uh they could potentially you know profit from that uh and and then we offer a suite of kind of uh, crypto native business models and right now those are around nfts so if you have a media company you could sell an nft you can create an addition And also I think the, the most exciting part about all of this is when you have more than one person involved you kind of you can create a community uh uh represented by your token. So we're seeing a lot of these kind of uh, uh DAO and um kind of community owned use cases emerge. And uh our our the product itself is in a private beta right now and um you know the inspiration there was you know private betas are great because when you have kind of early stage software um you know you want people to to test it carefully but you also want to you know, kind of uh, gate access create some you know uh, uh, fomo and and demand for your product and this is a very old model right you know uh 
Clubhouse, which we're on right now, created this amazing invite system. Uh, Superhuman has executed that very well. And like, if you even remember, like 10 years ago, Gmail invites were really scarce. Like you could buy a Gmail invite for 100 bucks on eBay at the time. So our thinking was, uh, how do we create an invite system for Mirror that's, uh, you know, crypto native has a crypto twist. And well, obviously that would involve a token. So what we have uh, is called the write token because uh, in order to write on Mirror, you need a write token. And, and basically we, we decided to create this competition, the write race where um, every week uh, community members decide uh, uh, what 10 people should join the platform next. And the thinking was uh, if we have a private beta, it, it feels wrong for the, our team to decide who gets in. If Mirror is meant to be a community owned and operated you know, economy and platform, the user should decide who joins. So basically the way it works is if you are a member of Mirror, you have 100 times more votes than people who are trying to, trying to join Mirror. And anyone who wants to join the waitlist uh, is airdropped a fraction of a right token. So it's not enough to join, but it's enough to vote on who should join. And we've we've ran uh, 15 rounds so far um, over the past few months, and it's been really fascinating to see kind of the community coordinate and the kinds of people who get elected uh, to to join the community. And and the bar has been really high, and we have uh, really really amazing creators. And like, there's these really really fascinating kind of second order effects happening, like. Uh, I might need to have an offline chat with you on how I can win one of these races. <laughs> well, you you know you know a bunch of people um, like Ali uh, who are already in, so they, they can maybe give you some votes. Ali, really... <laughs> tell me what you need. <laughs> it's been really just interesting to see like it, the communal behavior. Like if you join Medium uh, and anyone can join, you're not uh, you know thankful to anyone, et cetera. And if someone joins on Mirror, they're they're actually uh, thanking who. Uh, voted for them publicly, it creates this kind of communal cohesion. And I think uh, what we're doing here is we're setting up, right, right now it's this very simple governance action of deciding who gets in. But you can imagine we already have basically this, you know, civil system. And, and what that means kind of in a non-technical way is basically, um, you know, kind of uh, verified identity for a bunch of great users. And our plan in the future is to give them uh, more kind of uh, governance responsibility in the protocol. So you could imagine, um, you know, one obvious idea is if this is a creator platform, um, what if our users uh, had access to a creator fund? And, you know, TikTok has a creator fund, um, Substack has a creator fund, uh, uh, Snapchat has a creator fund where, where, you know, the way those funds are allocated is like, it's like the company decides, right? There's some right. team kind of behind closed doors uh, making decisions, which creators get uh, funded, which get deals, which get uh, signed deals with the company. And I think what's exciting here is the community can decide uh, how to allocate capital to creators. Um, and basically, you know, it's kind of a, 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 you know, works in two directions. Kind of a creator feels like, you know, it was the will of the community to fund them it be mm -hmm. because it's all public and transparent. There's like really powerful marketing and kind of a promotion happening for creators. So I think mm. those these models will provide to be way more powerful than like, like what the kind of legacy platforms are doing. You know, I have commented also a question, uh, you know, one of the, Topics I've always been fascinated about is social currency on large consumer platforms. It's you know been a large part of my career for the last ten years. 
And the way social currency on Twitter or TikTok or Instagram usually dealt out is, you know, for example, somebody uh, on TikTok can determine, hey, how ranking works. And they can sort of say, hey, this whole community is going to get a lot more attention. And this whole community or, you know, topic or trend is going to get a lot less. And sometimes they are manually thrown levers. Sometimes they kind of happen, you know, as the output of various um, machine learning models. I think what's interesting here is you have the community which is already on the platform mirror actually deciding how the community gets uh, shaped. So, Dennis, I'm kind of curious, you know, in your role as, you know, like, for example, if you were not building Mirror, and let us say 10 years ago, you were, say, Mark Zuckerberg or Ev Williams, you would have a degree of control in shaping the community, uh, which, you know, I know by design have much less of. How do you think about it when it comes to your own role? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's very interesting. Like, like we we're, we have this problem. Um, like, literally, we we've hired some new people over the past weeks, and they're joining the, uh, the 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 core team of Mirror like like this week. And they're like, I want to use the product. How do I how do I get on the platform? And we had to tell them, you have to join the right race. You, we can't give you uh, uh, kind of like special privileges because we've committed to this kind of governance system and everyone is subject to it, e even the team itself. So I think it's um, it, what's fascinating about crypto is you can kind of as 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 the creator of the project, although you you contributed to creating it, you can kind of programmatically, you know, handcuff yourself or um, just limit your powers and commit to them in a way that. Uh, all of your users, your whole community can can uh, see that you cannot change the rules, even though you might be like, you know, on the founding team of the project. Unlike existing platforms, you know, where the, the terms of service changes, the rules change, Avicho's point to uh, developer APIs getting cut off, uh, we would just simply be unable to do that. So I'm actually, just to say, I'm very curious. So, you know, about eight, nine years ago when I was at Facebook, this is actually an interesting incident, which I don't think has ever been talked about in public. It's probably almost a decade now. At one year... Uh, Facebook had an issue, which was there were way too many memes on Facebook. Avichal, you might remember this. Um, and <laughs> yep, what was I happening was uh, everybody would post a meme. Um, um, gosh, I'm forgetting which meme. There's like this popular meme that they would post and it would just be clogging up people's feeds because, you know, memes were large and visual and you kind of hit like, but it wasn't necessarily what everyone wanted to see. And what wound up happening is a bunch of really smart machine learning people kind of, you know, built a way to detect what a meme was, you know, using some very basic image recognition and they explicitly downtracked it. So that's kind of an interesting example of, you know, these kind of core governance members pulling an explicit lever. Now, of course, there are a lot more, you know, things which happen in ranking, which which are a lot more complex than just down-ranking memes. So I'm curious how you think in terms yeah. of, um, you know, abdicating power to the community. For example, let us say, you know, someday, you know, Mirror gets taken over by memes, right? You know, how do you sort of trust the community to do the right thing? Yeah, I think it's 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 memes, but I think what you're alluding to is that there could be way more way worse problems. Like oh yeah, memes is kind of an easy memes, example. Right? There's way worse totally. problems in there. But I think I think it's a perfect example of that the the only people that had um, you know the the legitimacy or even just the ability, like literally, like 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 permission to uh, interfere here were people employed by Facebook. Yep. And I think what's amazing about crypto is you know because the protocols are open, all the data is open, the, the talent pool is no longer uh, the employees that work at your company. It becomes literally any anyone in the world can can contribute to the project. So I think what we, and I think maybe uh, uh, 
you know, using algorithms to decrease the popularity of memes upset some users. So maybe some users would have preferred that, but uh, everyone kind of got a one size fits all solution. And I think with crypto, I think the hope is that, um, you know, we can have kind of a competitive marketplace, not just around, uh, you know, the protocols themselves, but also, you know, the curation algorithms on top of them, um, you know, the recommendation systems, and that there could be uh, different worlds of the view. One could be the, the meme world, and there could be uh, others. But it would enable kind of maybe a whole suite of businesses to be built on just just for the curation. Rate. Yeah, just just jumping in on what Jenna, Dennis said, like um, Will and I are, are we believe that um, the future of a lot of these like crypto, DeFi, NFT, and other networks, like crypto networks, ultimately there is going to be a social and a curation layer on top of them, and um, part of what we are we are building at Syndicate because we we also have that same issue like frankly, any other DeFi network or crypto network is we're going to build a so we're building a social platform and a social network on top that actually has curation um, as part of that. And, and, you know, if if there is ultimately like we are planning to decentralize the network and ultimately if there is kind of a um, governance layer, I guess, to that network, like part of the governance layer, um, like what the purpose of that governance layers do is in addition to kind of um, managing and upgrading the protocol, it also is to help curate the network and what shows up on the network, or at least gets surfaced and prioritized on the network. And so, um, I think that frankly, like what the dynamics that you're, you're talking about here is like true, definitely about syndicate. And that's what we're planning to do. I would say that that's like going to be true about almost every crypto network out there in the future, whether they, they know that or not. Um, uh, Avichal, I'm curious because you spent a bunch of years at Facebook and you've been deep inside crypto. Do you think something like this could be retrofitted on top of an existing large social platform like Facebook is and actually have the, um, you know, the people who use the platform have say in governance? No. <laughs> Short answer. Uh, I, longer, longer answer, I think, you know, it's one of these properties of technology that you can't just swap out the infrastructure you have to change the human organization around the infrastructure, right? It's like why Walmart can't just compete against Amazon. Like there's so much more that goes into it beyond standing up the dot com. Uh, you have to, like certain people have to give up power. Certain people have to take on power. The way decisions are made is different. Like the all meme haters changes. from 2012 have to give up power. Totally. And, and um, yeah, I mean, what is crypto without means, right? So, uh, yeah, I think it, it would be impossible. But what, what I think Ian is getting at is like, I think, um, there will be this new form of social that can emerge around DAOs, um, and it'll look and feel different, but it, it might scratch some of the same itches. But I think it's going to have to be crypto native because I think the human organization around the infrastructure just has to be different. I, I, I love it. Uh, you know, by the way, I think this space. Uh, you know, uh, I think we have um, some amazing set of you know founders and builders represented here. But I think this space, which is the intersection of crypto and social networks and curation governance, is super super interesting. Um, you know, I've been, I've gotten personally sucked into just given my whole world is so much in uh, social networks. So Ali sees a lot more of me these days, and I think he really wants to. Uh, but uh, it's so interesting. Okay, uh, we are now way over time. I want to kind of wrap. Uh, because it's been such an interesting episode. I want to end by looking to the future. So I want to go around the room and I want to ask each one of you the same question, which is when you look at the next, say, 10 years of all things DAO, what excites you? And second, what is a DAO that you think should exist that doesn't um, exist today? And uh, Ali, I want to start with you. I'll start with uh, 
it's a fairly simple and concrete idea that could be built uh, in the near future, I think, uh, that um, combines the worlds of DAOs with uh, NFTs. And so I think uh, one inspiration for the idea uh, is the million dollar homepage from, uh, I think, over a decade ago, which was this website yes. where yes. you could have, yeah, it's essentially a website where you could buy control over a pixel for a dollar, and it's a, an image that contained a million pixels. And so a million dollars for the creator of this website. Um, it worked fantastically well. A bunch of people bought pixels that they wanted to control in large part for... Uh, in large part for advertising, they just wanted to essentially advertise something on this page that millions of people were visiting. And a separate inspiration that's somewhat similar and is kind of along, along the same vein as uh, the Million Dollar homepage is um, Reddit Place, which was this kind of experiment run on Reddit where uh, you as a user of Reddit could control a pixel in an image um, uh, in a rate limited way, like you could essentially set the color of the pixel once every hour or something, something like that. I forget the exact kind of parameters, but that's kind of the, the, the spirit of it. And this results in a kind of like dynamic image that changes all of the time. And you have like millions of people visiting this website and trying to control pixels. And they have to, in a sense, coordinate with other users to try to create images that are interesting. And the result is absolutely fascinating. I would recommend like, everyone should just go to YouTube. If you haven't seen this, go to YouTube and see like the accelerated version of what happened with Reddit Place. It's truly outstanding. The, the result is both beautiful, but also fascinating because it's like an, an anthropological study of the kinds of things that people want to try to displace. And there are like factions that are warring with one another. And it's, it's just like a really interesting experiment. And I think that you can just take these ideas and, and then now... I mean, if we introduce crypto to them and we introduce DAOs, you can imagine building something like a like a collective NFT that um, is sort of, you know, um, you can think of it as a tapestry, like it could be an image as well, where each cell or each pixel is controlled by the holder of some token. Um, and there's, there are many, many directions that you could take this in. Like it could be similar to Reddit Place or similar to, to the Million Dollar Homepage, or, or it could be different. It could be, it could be, um, it could be the case that there are maybe more constraints. Like, like for example, you could say that as owner of one particular pixel, mm -hmm. um, I want to connect to the owners of other pixels in that same image and have the color of my pixel be the average or like be be like derived from the pixels of my friends or something like that. Like you can kind of get really creative for. Uh, like what what the mechanics of of, uh, of like the appearance of this work of art ends up being, and it would be this dynamic thing that's collectively owned uh, that maybe ends up looking extremely interesting, if, if depending on how it's structured. Um, it could be like a sort of a fascinating experiment, and I think could be built maybe even with the technology that we have today, if you include things like layer twos and um, you know some of the the newer tech that's that's coming to the fore now. But I love that, you know, uh, because I think those things are, you know, I think Dennis's point earlier, those things are kind of these proto-DAOs where you had collective emergent behavior on the internet um, and usually some like really, really, you know, positive results. I love that. By the way, highly recommend that. Highly recommend the billion dollar homepage, uh, iconic, iconic internet moments. Love that, Ali. Okay. Uh, Avichal, over to you. Uh, what excites you about the future and a DAO that doesn't exist today that you think should? Uh, so on the first question, I think it's a little abstract, but I think people will get it, is, is the idea that when you lower the friction to collective action, really interesting things can happen because you've lowered the bar for those things to happen. And I think there are a lot of 
classes of problems that are sort of exist in the commons, but getting governments to move and act on them is really hard. Um, but as some of these DAOs are showing, you might be able to marshal hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Uh, and if you can do that um, on the internet by lowering the friction, you, you might actually be able to solve some really interesting and meaningful problems. Like, you know, imagine a DAO that collectively, you know, uh, crowdfunds a billion dollars to solve carbon sequestration problems or to clean up plastic from the ocean. Or like, there's really cool stuff that I think people will come up with just because the friction is, is so significantly lowered to getting everybody to want to do something. And it exists outside of the existing regulatory frameworks, which I think unlocks a lot of innovation. So that's kind of that high level. Uh, a specific question, and I think it kind of um, gets at the same idea and it was, it was sort of sparked by your thought around um, social and Facebook. Um, I've been thinking about a DAO that sort of turns journalism on its head a little bit, um, inspired by, um, there's, a, there's a protocol, um, a product called ImmuneFi, um, which lets people uh, set up bug bounties in DeFi and then fa- find those bug bounties and report them. And so I've been Is this thinking a about, biology uh, thing? Sounds like a biology no, thing. Uh, actually, he might he might be an investor. I don't I don't remember. Hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it is a, I mean, all of crypto is a biology thing. <laughs> um, but I think um, you could do something kind of like that for. I mean, this that's actually now that I'm saying it out loud, probably this is a biology thing. I'm sure he's he would be a fan of this. Is uh, uh, basically bounties for journalism. Um, like I think there are investigative journalism topics that actually you could pool capital to go to go you know uh, pursue. Or I think local news could benefit from this, right? Like, you know, there there are certain topics in the Bay Area that I would actually totally be willing to chip in ten or twenty dollars for. Um, and, and so you could create, I think, these these DAOs that either serve local communities or certain kinds of investi- investigative journalism topics, and can actually essentially pool capital and have the capital ready to go uh, to fund these journalistic endeavors. And I, and I think that could potentially be a new business model for for us to actually, you know, have this really important thing in society, which is journalism, kind of survive. I, I love it. By the way, I think we should do a future episode where we kind of dig deep into all these potential applications because it is so cool. Um, Will, Ian, uh, over to you. Uh, you know, what excites you about the future of DAOs and then a DAO that doesn't exist today that you think should? Yeah, so one thing that um, excites us is that no one knows what the future of DAOs will look like. We were talking about what YouTube and blogging looked like before YouTube and blogging existed. Um, every single person listening to this Clubhouse chat has just as good an idea of what DAOs uh, will look like in the future as um, anyone who's spent their their the the last few years researching it because no one really knows, um, and that unknowability is very exciting. Uh, the DAOs we want to exist. Ian and I have talked about this a lot. Is um, we love the idea of uh, researching grant DAOs. Um, so many people have causes that uh, they care about or topics that they want to learn more about, and imagine if you could fund communities to work directly on these causes. Um, like if you're really, really passionate about, uh, say, like uh, better models for uh, cities, like urban planning, let's say, uh, fund a bunch of people to research it and fund a bunch of people to put up proposals and fund lobbying efforts to get those adopted. Um, DAOs really enable communities to organize uh, a step beyond what they currently do by letting them allocate capital just as easily as they can allocate their time. I love that. Yeah, for me, for me, at the highest levels, I, I think DAOs are like fintech social networks. Um, like they're social networks with fintech natively embedded in them, and the 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 idea of that is is a really big one. And what the applications could be are you know unlimited. I think one one particular thing um, which is is sort of evolving uh, or, or piggybacking off of what Will said is like. We, we think there's this really interesting opportunity to collapse the divide between 
uh, for-profit and non-profit investing. And, and so like, for example, grant making the, the, the line, the line between a grant making foundation and like a for-profit venture firm, we think via DAOs and crypto might like blur in the next like 10 years. So what is, what does that maybe look like? So at IDEO, we were involved in this thing. We launched this thing called Fair Launch Capital. And the idea of, of it was this um, grant making investment fund, basically, that would provide capital to new crypto startups uh, for free with no strings attached, just to get them off the ground and to launch um, basically without any traditional funding. And um, what was interesting from that experiment was like, um, we learned that, and, and this is a lot of the design pattern, a lot of these new crypto startups is that like when they launch, even when you look at Uniswap, right, like Uniswap sort of reserved a good portion of the network to its early users and early supporters, like of people that bought Unisocks like way back in the day. And if that becomes like a m even more dominant design pattern, you might see this world where actually there are a lot of like DAOs that are not for profit, they are they are actually just grant making vehicles, but they end up being like very, very profitable because the networks that they support the development of purely or or largely for altruistic purposes might end up rewarding them with significant parts of the network. And the implications of that, like like pretty big, like to venture pretty big to organizations like the Gates Foundation that might be able to actually like leverage and like compound their, you know, their dollars. Like, I think that, that that's an area that, mm -hmm. that is underexplored and, and we'll see a lot of that in the next, you know, even one to 10 years. In, uh, I'm, maybe this is not the right analogy, but I was thinking about open source here. In some ways, this is like, imagine, you know, some of the earliest contributors to the Linux kernel actually getting economic value like decades later. Is that like a fair Absolutely. or is that like one <laughs> direction this could go? Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. I think this is like a whole topic we could have. And I'm, I'm sure Stephen would have lots of thoughts on this too. I think there are lots of really, really interesting parallels to, to the open source movement here. Yeah. I, I think by the way, I think the open source movement is kind of a prototype for a lot of this in terms of blurring the world between community um, and corporations and building some of the earliest kind of governance models that we've seen on the internet. Uh, it's super um, interesting. I mean, Stephen, you know, uh, you know, did you, you obviously dealt a lot with open source, uh, you know, at your time at Microsoft. Did you folks ever think about what this could lead to? Uh, I think that's a trick question because, you know, back <laughs> in the day, most people tried to figure out how to have it not lead to anything. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think that the, the analogy is very strong because of, of the way, you know, if you go back to the beginning of the episode tonight, talking about the history of the corporation and that, you know, the LLC enabled a whole different set of innovation. And that's really what the open source mm -hmm. movement did. It, it just, it changed the innovation model. And so I, I think that that is just a super important takeaway for, what what this discussion has all been about, which is it's it's not it's not just an analogy. It's trying to build a different model so that there are different outcomes that just wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yep, I love it. Okay, just back on my you know wrap up tour, uh, people pleaser. Um, you know, would love to kind of hear from you on what excitable future DAOs, especially you know what's coming up in the pleaser DAO world, and a DAO that doesn't exist today that you think should. Um. So 
think obviously like similarly to what Dennis was talking about before where um I mean obviously Pleaser Dow is currently sort of like an art focused Dow, but um just for like I think our future vision and what we think lies in ahead, um something that maybe people haven't started sort of exploring yet is the concept of like creator DAOs. But um specifically for pleaser DAO and then what bouncing off of what Dennis said was like was saying way earlier about how you know, the bidding process is actually quite a lonely one. Um, similarly, I had noticed sort of uh, in creation of like NFTs and stuff, it, it was also like a very lonely journey or a lot of the focus is on like the self and um, just, you know, basically uh, kind of like pulling funds to like one person and also sort of like winning a bid is also a lonely process in, in the sense that previously it was just one person. So the introduced the introduction of DAOs is kind of like a huge game changer there and something that we we and I feel like the formation of Pleaser DAO was just like a very very organic sort of demonstration of um a use a use case for um DAOs right like in this term uh in this case it would be bidding but also in the future I think um instead of like you know thinking individually uh DAOs are sort of uh, hurting everybody's directions into thinking collectively so instead of artists competing with each other we could be collectively creating um you know bigger pieces of work I mean you're already seeing this with like massive productions like movies and animations and stuff like an animation that one person can do is obviously can never be as good as an animation that um, a group of people can do. And uh, the concept of DAOs in itself is actually very similar. Like Pleaser DAO is built um, of comprised of like a bunch of talented members, each um, with their own sort of specific fields. And, uh, you know, there's like builders, um, designers, investors, uh, and they all sort of like bring their own value to the table. And I think that's what sort of like makes Pleaser DAO um, really, really uh, valuable. And uh, as a collective, um, DAOs can sort of tackle on more more and more complex uh, needs and um, just issues within society or technology uh, as we push towards the future. And um, specifically for Pleaser DAO, I think their, uh, you know, like Grand Vision is kind of like, uh, let's imagine, you know, so they're obviously right now um, targeting a lot of pieces that have either like histor- historic significance and then also, you know, have like a charity aspect and basically just uh, individual pieces that, you know, they believe that will have sort of hold a lot of value in the future. And so let's imagine there's like a future internet MoMA and then Pleaser DAO is like displaying their cases, but Mm -hmm. their plan is to actually sort of, uh, and you know, this sort of also bounces off the idea of people or like for the people and they're like trying to please the people. And so for example, to fractionalize something that everybody thinks is a cool piece, like the Snowden piece, um, imagine, you know, in the future you're going to an internet MoMA and then you visit the museum and then you see the Snowden piece. Um, yeah, instead of this sort of like individualism mindset where you're like, I own the piece, it's like, oh, everybody who's visiting the museum can mm-hmm. actually own a piece of this art. Um, and I think that's super cool. And then um, on top of that, so it's like sort of uh, incentivize people to do this is uh, they're currently building on, you know, um, working with like fractional to sort of not only like fractionalize the pieces, but also combine it with some DeFi mechanisms. So for example, you could do like staking. So you could let's say buy a fraction of the art piece and then you can stake it and then farm governance tokens in return. Um, and this is just sort of touching the surface of the waters of what's possible with um, all of the complex DeFi 
uh, mechanisms that already exist, but haven't mm -hmm. actually been combined with NFTs. And I think that's sort of uh, the power of Pleaser DAO as well, is that it is uh, comprised of members who sort of have the interest to uh, explore combining both, which hasn't really been done before or yet. And that's something that we're really excited about as a collective. Uh, I, I love the, first of all, there's so many beautiful themes that you touched on here, but I love the idea of collective ownership. Uh, of you know, A couple of months ago, we had uh, Meta Cohen on the show, the night of you know him and Tubador winning the Beeple artwork. And you know, one of the things you talk about is what he actually wanted to do with it, the 5,000 days, uh, the every days rather. And he spoke about how we wanted to create this virtual museum and really have the public own it. Uh, you know, and obviously through this, you know, B20 virtual land mechanism. So I think I love the theme of collective ownership as opposed to individual ownership. That's, that's amazing. Okay, last but definitely not least, Dennis, I'm sure you have thoughts here. What gets you, gets you excited about the future of DAOs and what's a DAO that doesn't exist today that you want to see exist? Yeah, but, well, first I would say, uh, multiplayer mode over single player mode. I think that's like the key insight through everyone's discussion. And mm -hmm. as long as you get groups of people, it's much better than individuals. But I would say an exciting application for me is, uh, you know, ch charitable use cases. And basically, I, here's an example. I think traditionally, how does charity work? It's someone, you know, let's say, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, he becomes a billionaire first. And, you know, first, basically, you become mega rich, and then you decide to start donating uh, money because, you know, there's just there's just no way to automate pre-committing uh, to donate your future wealth. And I think what's exciting about crypto is whether it's for your company or for you as an individual, you can actually pre-commit or for a DAO, you can pre-commit your future revenue to go to charitable causes. So you can literally say, um, you know, I want, you know, 30 percent of my future income to go to, you know, there's like all these charitable organizations in crypto. There's projects like Gitcoin, projects like the Ethereum Foundation, right. you can make part of your project story and part of your vision um, that you 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 have programmatically committed immutably to give to charitable causes. So it's, it's just like you, you know, you eat organic food or you try to, um, you know, buy green energy. You can use companies that aren't just, you know, promising to do good things. You can actually kind of uh, approvably see, see that they're doing that. I think that's really exciting for DAOs. I love the idea of it being, you know, programmatically, you know, uh, uh, enforced, or you know, as opposed to on a honor system. That's just amazing. Okay, uh, we are way over time, and I think we couldn't think of a better note to wrap on. Uh, you know, I, I think for everybody listening, you know, you'll agree this is probably one of the best episodes we've done in a very, very long time. Uh, we're obviously just scratching the surface. Uh, this is a fantastic uh, overview of all things DAOs with some of the people obviously leading the charge in this world. We're going to spend many future episodes digging into a lot of individual applications. But for tonight, I want to first, you know, thank, you know, the thousands of you who are listening, all the folks who replied on Twitter. And Stephen, there were actually lots of people replying on Twitter, uh, you know, who absolutely loved it. Uh, for those of you asking, we will try and uh, get a recording of this uh, up later just because it was so interesting um, and more than worth going way over time. Um, I want to, but most of all, I want to thank our wonderful guests tonight. Uh, People Pleaser, Will, Ian, Avichil, Steven, and, you know, my dear friend Ali, Thank you so much. This was amazing. And, you know, really, you know, I, I'm sure and actually know that you've blown a lot of people's minds. So thank you so much for being on the show.